This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Some residents in the city of Toronto are complaining that too many pot shops, however legal, are popping up on retail strips in various neighborhoods. In reaction, Toronto City Councillors Kristen Wong-Tam and Paula Fletcher are calling for Ontario's governing PCs to stop giving out new cannabis retail licenses for a year or until an opposition private member's bill possibly becomes law. It's not just the number of marijuana retailers that are at issue. They also want cities to have more say over where these stores are located. To discuss the issue, Libby spoke with Adam Vassos, President, Retail Cannabis Council of Ontario, Meg Marshall, Community Manager of the Queen Street West Bloor Court Business Improvement Areas, NDP MPP Peter Tabbins, along with Toronto City Councillor Paula Fletcher. Yeah, down on Queen East in one business district, there are six in a row, basically in a block and a half from Broadview going east. And the Danforth has quite a bit of clustering. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of constituents write in and say, gee, uh, what are we doing? The, the street is kind of getting dead in the same time we're trying to liven it up. As I said in that clip, we only have four LCBOs, and now we could have up to, at this point, 34 uh, pot shops. And the LCBO has the same product. So do all these stores. I just want to say that you remember back when this was uh, legalized and all of us support the legalization, the province asked every city, are you in or are you out to sell pot? And our city said, yes, we're in. We're happy to do that. But we want some conditions around where the stores would go. Well, we got the sales, but we didn't get the conditions. So we're still after those. Well, aren't there what we're trying to do? Sorry to interrupt, and I'll throw this to Peter Tabbins. Aren't there conditions about the proximity to schools and and stuff like that? Well, what's been brought forward by my colleague, uh, MPP Merritt Stiles, is giving cities the the power, uh, sorry, the authority to have much greater control on the concentration of shops. I think cities have the the ability to look at all the other social factors uh, and determine in their minds what what proximities are of concern and what concentrations work and don't work. Uh, And I think here, Libby, really it's making sure the cities have that planning ability, that regulatory ability to keep our main streets attractive uh, and not simply dominated by one product. Uh, Meg Marshall, is that a fair argument? Just looking at it from the context of being a community manager, um, municipalities and community members are the ones that are the ears and eyes on the street. So when we look at how these applicants are issued their approvals, it's all it's all done from a provincial body, and it doesn't. There's, it's evident that there's no real strategy in the placement or how many they even we're going to allow, uh, backing up Councillor Fletcher's point that there's 
um, far more cannabis retail outlets now than LCBO, they're just kind of, if someone meets, if the applicant meets the required criteria, then they basically just get a green pass to go and open up their shop. So what's really important is that the hyper-local communities and neighborhoods have a say in what goes on in their neighborhoods. And as it currently stands, um, the municipality feedback just doesn't have any weight. And we need to give the municipalities, our cities, our city councillors, that mechanism to allow to comment. Okay, thank you, Meg Marshall. And now joining the conversation is Adam Vassos, President of the Retail Cannabis Council of Ontario. Hello there, Adam. Good afternoon, Libby. You know, we're, we're Canadians, and Canadians believe in an open market. Uh, I think that means that consumer demand drives supply, not the government. Uh, you know, I've been listening to uh, Councillor uh, Fletcher uh, indicate that she'd like to see a balance in terms of, you know, what's appropriate in, uh, with stores and uh, other businesses. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that the city is uh, qualified to determine what that appropriate balance is. Um, I'm not sure anybody is. You, you know, we, we, as I said, believe in an open market, and the market determines supply and demand. And I understand that, you know, from someone sitting outside of the industry looking in, you're going to say, hey, there's a lot of stores. There's way too many stores. And you look at Queen Street or you look at Danforth, and I think Councillor Fletcher said there was 26 cannabis stores in her entire um, riding. But if you look at things like restaurants, you know, on Queen Street, there's probably over 100 restaurants. On Girard, there's over 100. Yeah, but most of them sell different things. Well, at the end of the day, everybody sells different things. And, and to say that cannabis stores all sell the same thing is really uh, incorrect. The OCS, which is our wholesaler from where uh, retail cannabis stores buy their products, they have over 1,600 SKUs. That, that means 16 different, uh, 1,600 different items. The average cannabis store carries 100 or less of those SKUs. So from a, from a theoretical or a reality point of view, you could literally have 16 stores on the same block all selling different things, no one selling the same thing. Adam Vassos, President, Retail Cannabis Council of Ontario. Meg Marshall, Community Manager of the Queen Street West, Bloor Court Business Improvement Areas. NDP MPP Peter Tabbins and Toronto City Councillor Paula Fletcher. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's like another pandemic that is spreading. Lately, we've been hearing more about increasing online hate against some ethnic groups and politicians, especially women. Now there is another group that is being targeted by aggressive anti-vaxxers, doctors. And sometimes it escalates all the way to death threats for the advocacy and education of COVID-19 vaccines by physicians. Joining Libby to share their experiences, Dr. Amit Arya, the palliative care lead at Kensington Health in Toronto, Dr. Tally Bogler, an academic family physician and family medicine obstetrics provider at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth, an Ottawa-based family physician who writes about health policy and politics. So I wrote, and um, I was responding to a death threat and anti-Semitic hate that I received um, in the last um, week. And, um, but like, I really emphasize that this isn't, this isn't an isolated event. We are, um, seeing more and more, um, nastiness, more violence and, um, 
racist and, and um, threatening uh, both activity on social media as well as in our in our um, clinics and around hospitals and uh, and all of this is so not okay. And really the, the question that I was posing was who has our back? Because we've done all the work that we were asked to do and we've gone above and beyond. And um, while we're exhausted and um, feeling demoralized from, from the ways in which we haven't been supported by our province, um, we still keep doing it because it really matters. But of course, when we receive death threats and uh, when we have to have police outside of our homes or offices, um, we are, you know, we're saying like there is, a, there is a line that has been crossed and it's not okay. Dr. Ahmed Arya, what's your experience? Yeah, so through the pandemic, I've received a lot of hatred, mostly through social media, but not exclusively. Um, a lot of it has been very threatening. Um, you know, much of it has been argumentative, you know, sort of trying to tell me that COVID-19 is not real. It's a hoax, and I'm part of some greater <laughs> global conspiracy. We get that here, too, but yeah, yeah it's usually yeah, not so, dangerous. Yeah, so so absolutely, that's, you know, something. And of, of course, I would say that that rhetoric has escalated since the vaccine rollout. Since we've had public health measures such as mandates uh, for health workers, specifically in long-term care, or at least people lobbying for mandates and vaccine certificates, um, definitely I've found lately um, since, uh, you know, the government has made, you know, sort of two decisions. Um, you know, one decision was where they sort of announced these dates to roll back the vaccine certificate program without having the data to support it. Um, you know, that kind of, I felt, emboldened a lot of the rhetoric online. And, you know, the second one is where they sort of refuse to mandate vaccines for health workers. And that really, in you know, in social media was a victory for many people who are against vaccinations. And I just really want to emphasize that, of course, um, I mean, I think we should have no room and, you know, there should be no place in our society for death threats for, you know, misogyny, anti-Semitism and racism that many of my colleagues and myself are experiencing. But beyond that, we need our political leaders to really do their job and actually rise to the occasion, show leadership, protect health workers who are already suffering and burnt out themselves. That's step one, because, of course, a healthy workforce of health workers is what we need to keep people healthy. Uh, Dr. Bogler, what's your experience? Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, I was, you know, very involved in advocating for pregnant individuals to get the vaccine uh, during their pregnancy right from the get-go. And what happened as a result of that is I received, you know, we saw lots of anti-vaccine propaganda related to fertility and pregnancy. And I want to say it's almost like anti-vaccines on, on steroids, <laughs> because when it gets to the pregnancy piece, people... It becomes, it gets woven into this discussion about pro-life, pro-choice, this whole discourse that can become very hateful. Um, and it be, and I, and I received the direct target of that. I received, uh, threats online, um, lots on social media. But for me, it really escalated when I started to receive, um, handwritten letters, um, sent to me at my office. 
Dr. Tally Bogler, an academic family physician and family medicine obstetrics provider at St. Michael's Hospital here in Toronto, Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth, Ottawa-based family physician, and Dr. Ahmed Arya, the palliative care lead at Kensington Health in Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, Remembrance Day gatherings resume after two long years. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just when the daily COVID numbers were looking good and we were all starting to relax and resume some of the activities we've missed for nearly two years, the numbers have recently been going in the wrong direction. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, told Libby, we are in the fourth wave. And he believes the lifting of restrictions at sports, venues, and restaurants is the reason why. Weren't we expecting an increase in cases as the winter sets in? Oh, yeah. So, you know, we knew that. We had we have even done some analysis in the past that were published that uh, that have shown that um, the extent of mobility and contacts that you can afford changes over time, depending on how the weather is and how the temperatures are. It's all a function of whether you're inside or outside. No? The virus loves being inside, transmit inside. So if we move more indoors with, uh, you know, mid-October, the temperatures dropped by eight degrees or so, this will contribute. And that's the point here. You know, it's a contribution of, it's a contribution of several factors. The point here is just, okay, let's not wait forever. We need to be aware of, we probably need to adapt, fine-tune a little bit our response so that our case numbers are, you know, uh, constant again in a few weeks from now and linger around 1,000 and don't continue to grow. Uh- Dr. Uni, I know that you are not on social media, but there's a fairly vocal group there. I would call them dissenting doctors. And what they're saying is that the problem is that you have measures to counter a droplet spread virus, and this one is airborne. Oh, uh, for sure. You know, the, the transmission that happens, um, and I've always been outspoken since uh, summer 2020, and the transmission that happens um, uh, out there in the community goes is is, is airborne. It goes through the air for sure. And uh, the point is, we have that's also why we actually just are much better when people are outside as compared to inside. And what we can do is basically, if we talk about you know uh, capacity limits in restaurants. For example, if we basically have some capacity limits because we physically distance the tables, this means there's less people in the restaurant and the ventilation relative to the crowding in the restaurant is much better. No? And, and uh, it's always a combination of behavior, masks, ventilation and vaccination. That's where, what we can do. And by the way, if you want to have a little bit more of a, of a background, the latest the slide deck that we have on our website is exactly looking into, you know, ventilation. That's something that we also looked into in detail when we talked about schools. So what would you recommend? Do you want, you know, uh, the capacity limits are off at restaurants and sports venues. Do you want them back on? What do you think? Well, 
we'll see. I think this might be a local decision or perhaps later on also a provincial one will find out. It's certainly one way to deal with it. First of all, just uh, um, make sure that the measures we have are, you know, implemented stringently. For instance, what I heard is that, you know, people let slip uh, the checks for with uh, regarding uh, vaccine certificates a bit, which is unfortunate. This shouldn't happen. Uh, we can get much better regarding masks. Um, for instance, in their sports arenas, etc., there's uh, I think that's quite a big challenge. And and then in addition, if we um, struggle, continue to struggle, then we might need to reconsider some of the capacity limits because if you decrease capacity again a bit in restaurants, this means that uh, the space is better ventilated relative to the amount of people you have in your restaurant, as an example. Okay. Um, uh, anything you want to leave us with? Well, you know, don't panic. Just uh, try. We, we just try to find a strategy that uh, gets this thing again under control. What is important to realize is we get a lot of control out of actually quite a few measures that will not really impede our societal freedom. So if we do a little bit of the right thing, then we should be good again, but we can't ignore the situation we're in. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Thursday was November 11th, the first Remembrance Day since before the pandemic that gatherings were allowed to commemorate this annual event we Canadians hold dear. Retired Major Jim Parks is 97 years old and a World War II veteran who landed on Juneau Beach on D-Day. Namita Joshi is Chief Program Officer at the True Patriot Love Foundation. Libby spoke with both, first retired Major Parks, who talked about his memories and how he spent this last Remembrance Day. Well, I was at uh, I met Breckbridge and the break um, present moment the Legion, but we spent the morning at the uh, out of the cenotaph uh, with the service, the emergency services, and we had we had a pretty good parade out there. We had a we had a, a couple of bands and the and the bagpipers, and they played uh, some good music, and uh, some uh, some were, music was uh, recognized, like Duquesne John Peel was a special one, and. Uh, we had a very good morning out there. Now I'm at the Luxbridge Legion. The, uh, uh, we were invited back here after the uh, after the service. And um, are you thinking about the people that you were with? You served with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles and um, D-Day. Oh yes, I, it's actually a thoughts. The thoughts come uh, uh, up fairly often, and, and particularly this week because I've been at uh, several little services. And uh, you always think of a, you think of the, uh, the services during the war and the, the different camps are at, and you think about the landing on D-Day and the uh, and the various battles in Normandy. Normandy was specifically we were ten weeks in Normandy, and that was quite a quite a set to. There was a uh, quite a battle between the uh, the Allies and the and the German soldiers until we broke out at uh, Calais and head up uh, head up to up, up uh, northern France, into Holland and Belgium, and into Germany. That and finished up in May, eight to May, forty-five. But it was quite a long, long, gruesome, 
trail going up that way. I'd like to bring in Namita Joshi. Uh, Namita, I mean, it really is a rare privilege to hear from somebody who was actually there. I agree with you completely, Libby, and thank you for the welcome, and sir, thank you for your service. Um, as we paused earlier this morning to honor and remember veterans, I was thinking of Silver Cross Mother Jose Simard and her daughter Karine Blay, as well as the 114,000 Canadians who have died in uniform over the last 100 years, and the many more who have passed on through suicide or as a result of physical and mental health challenges arising from their time in history in service. Being able to hear stories and share the experiences of our World War II veterans is so meaningful, not only for um, not only for families, but also for the younger generation as well. So thank you, sir, for sharing your experiences with us. Presently, Canada has 700,000 Canadian Armed Forces veterans. Many of them are also still struggling with their time after service. And without help, they may face an uncertain future that may include anxiety, depression, isolation, and post-traumatic stress. So through True Patriot Love, our hope is to be able to be able to provide that support not only to veterans, but also to their families. Uh, Jim Parks, I'm going to give the last word to you uh, about Remembrance Day. Well, before that, I'd like to mention, locally you have uh, Tish McDonald, who is uh, instrumental as a uh, is getting the, vet, the veterans' banners put up in different cities. They're pretty apparent in, in Exbridge and several communities nearby. And uh, she's she, she's always putting forth remembrance. She, she's her whole whole uh, whole time outside of her working time is is putting forth uh, items of remembrance. If you if you see banners showing up in different cities, that's her that was her start, and she. Um, she, she's got the, uh, the, the, the what you call the protocol lined up. Anybody wants to start it, she provides all the information how to get it started. If you walk through the town of Duxbridge, there's 272 banners put up with different veterans, uh, different times of year to put up, and they show their name, rank, and if the Army, Navy, or Air Force. It's a very good project, and she started it here, and it's uh, it's spreading across Canada. And so, like I say, she has the protocol. And they need it. She provides all the information how to get it started and how to get it going. If you walk around the town of Tuxbridge, you see all these different veterans of World War One, World War Two, and, and recent ones that are sitting up on the flagpole all around town. There's over 272 around here. World War II veteran, retired Major Jim Parks, and Namita Joshi, Chief Program Officer at the True Patriot Love Foundation. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Daryl from Toronto phoned on what he sees as double standards for pot stores. 
Okay, I'm I'm sensing a, a bit of I don't know. It seems like prejudice here. I'm, I mean, I would ask the questions like in the area where you're counting, how many cannabis shops are, and there's tons of them out there. I agree with that. But the point is, how many stores in that area sell cigarettes? How many Starbucks where they're all selling the exact same product? The cigarettes, the exact same product. How many Tim Hortons? And I'm, I'm sure you probably don't even know the answer to those. And I, you know, I don't really see what the difference is. This is business. All these stores will eventually sort themselves out. I don't know why you suddenly don't have faith in business and the marketplace sorting itself out. I mean, this is the beginning of it, and some will go out of business, and some will stick around. Dan in Mississauga called about recent death threats to doctors. I I think the police should be involved. If a doctor gets a death threat in a letter... That's no different than me coming to your office and saying I'm going to kill you. The police should be involved. I mean, these people should not get off the hook by threatening people in our community, especially doctors. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Cheryl in Kingston, who wants healthcare workers to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. I want to say that I am a recent cancer survivor, so I spent 2020 fighting the big C. Uh-huh. I still have to attend the hospital to serious specialists. I am fully vaccinated. And I think it's criminal that any healthcare worker should should be able to keep their job and be unvaccinated so they can impact my health when I've been so careful and other people are like me. I'm sorry, no. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout, call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.